But as you said, John, they actually asked him point blank, what type of landing do you expect, Chair Powell? And, uh, you know, everyone's talking about the soft landing. You're still thinking soft landing is the default scenario. He basically said no. And he's never going to say, I am likely causing a recession right now. The Fed will never admit to actually causing a recession. But the, the Fed speak that followed in Powell's answer was basically him saying, hey, folks, I think you better prepare for something materially harder than a soft landing here, right? Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you here for a bit of a special report. Um, we interviewed Darius Dale yesterday. We normally run uh, part two of that interview today, but uh, Jerome Powell, Fed chair, gave a press conference yesterday. Um, markets today certainly didn't really seem to like what he had to say. So I uh, wanted to do a special real-time reaction to the recent uh, Fed presser. So I'm bringing in uh, our uh, endorsed financial partners, uh, New Harbor Financial. I'm joined here by lead senior partners, John Lodra, Mike Preston. Guys, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, you know, a fair amount of to react to from uh, what Powell had to say. Um, like to go through that with you guys, and then we'll talk about what the markets are, are doing in response. John, why don't we start with you? What were what were some of the key things that you took away from what you heard Powell say? Okay, well, this. Uh, thank you, Adam. Great to be with you again. And always uh, uh, things to talk about on, on Fed Week, uh, uh, pretty much for the last decade, at least. Um, but, you know, just a couple of uh, takeaways. And this is just news news, news headlines. Um, probably old news by now, but the, the Fed decided to stand pat uh, at the current five and a quarter to five and a half uh, uh, target range for the federal funds rate. So no change. Um, the uh, still left on the table, the possibility, perhaps likelihood of one more quarter point rate increase uh, later this year, maybe at the December meeting or November. Um, and a couple other key takeaways um, talked about a, a slowing or cooling slightly in the labor market, which has been really a strong, you know, kind of holdout, if you will, in some of the recessionary Kind of indicators um, we've long said, and you've repeated many times in this program, Adam, that that's a classic lagging indicator. So usually, when the labor market starts to break, it's it's already kind of in the early innings of of a recession. Um, so that's that's not one that we really take as as um, you know a sign that everything's rosy and good. Uh, interestingly, that uh, pretty pretty hawkish tilt to 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 this this. Um, this, this press release or this, this press conference, um, the expectations is higher for longer. Uh, basically, hey, we're not we're not any anywhere close to thinking about lowering rates uh, anytime soon. They did they did uh, project uh, a, a terminal uh, rate for the Federal Reserve Federal Funds rate of I think two and a half percent. I believe twenty late twenty twenty five early twenty six. I might have the the timing on that wrong. Um, they may well get there, but we think it's probably um, the result of uh, a panic, a reactionary move to a, a market meltdown um, than a thoughtful, organized, uh, planned path lower. And uh, it'll just be a repeat of the last several episodes of, of bubble collapses where the Fed had to clean up the mess they made by once again lowering rates uh, to to uh, uh, in a reactionary way. Um, Interestingly, um, the commentary on the job market, they they communicated an expectation that maybe the unemployment rate will rise modestly from high 3%, so I forget where it is right now, 3.8 or something like that, to 4.1%, uh, which seems uh, massively hopeful to us. Uh, that, that would not at all be um, kind of consistent with, with prior episodes of recessions and periods of overvaluations like we, we've had here. So I think a lot of um, jawboning, a lot of wishful communication, but the, the general takeaway is a uh, uh, higher for longer um, kind of federal rate, federal federal funds rate policy, which probably in our minds means that there's going to be um, a prolonged kind of um, uh, challenge for the markets and the economy because of the lag effects that still have yet to work through. And, and uh, Chairman Powell, in fact, did acknowledge that uh, much of the tightening they have done has has really not um, 
factored into the economy yet. So we're we're in complete agreement with him on on that front. So those are some of the big takeaways, and I'm sure we'll get into some of the market reaction so far to that. All right, and and Mike, I'll come to you in a second. I just want to show a couple of visuals related to what John said. Um, so first, John, you and I we took the same things away from this. Um, Powell basically said, "Yep, I'm going to go." higher for even longer, right? And uh, I think that higher for longer pretty much now translates into weaker for longer in terms of the, the economic growth situation. The longer that interest rates stay at these elevated levels, the more time the gravity of those higher interest rates uh, has to act in pulling economic growth down. And Powell, as he's been very consistent about, you know, it was was just as consistent in this last press conference about how we have not seen it, the full manifestation um, of the Fed's activities that it's done to date, both in the the hiking regime that it's it's been pursuing, as well as the, the in parallel tightening regime um, with you know quantitative tightening, reducing its balance sheet. So he's been waving a, a flag that he's continuing to still wave, saying, "Hey, folks, we really haven't seen yet the main." impacts from all the work that we've done so far. Um, so I, I, I just take that as saying, you know, <clears throat> expect conditions to get even harder from here than folks have been expecting uh, going into 2024. Um, you talked about uh, the Fed's uh, saying that, hey, we think we're, I, I think they basically said, and I'll bring up the dot plot here in just a second that they shared, um, but the, uh, the, the, Federal Open Markets Committee, th their expectation is that they're probably going to do one more rate hike in 2023. Um, Powell isn't, isn't absolutely committing to it, nor is he tipping his hand on when he thinks the timing is going to be. But if you look at the current estimates of the group, th they are still actually um, forecasting uh, a Fed funds rate in the five and a half to 5.75% range right now for this year, meaning that they, they they would need to hike by another quarter point to hit that. Then they come down a little bit in 2024, and you'll see here by this dot plot, you know, they, they only get down to about two and a half percent by 2026 and afterwards. Um, I, like you, think that this is extremely optimistic, uh, it, 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 unrealistically uh, gentle glide path that they're projecting here. I think it's much more likely that the Fed is forced. Uh, to cut rates uh, much more aggressively next year, um, likely due to the sort of something breaks scenario, you know, under this this gravitational force of these high rates, something systemically important is going to break and or a recession arises and the Fed's going to have to step in in its time-honored rescue role uh, and have to bring debt rates down much more aggressively than this. Time yeah, will tell. We'll see. We'll keep trapping this. Yep. Yeah, Mike, I'd like to share a chart because uh, speaking to the, you know, the, the Fed pivot kind of uh, track record, if you will. And, and I think this this plays out with my comments just a moment ago. They may well get to two and a half percent or lower. Who knows where they end up? But but it likely would be because of a, a reactionary thing. So I'd just like to share a chart here. Yes. All right. So this is just a chart. It's, it's only going back to the late 90s. And it shows the federal funds. uh lower limit um, on the on the federal funds target rate. Uh, you can see right now um, it's a five and a quarter and they stayed at that level yesterday. Um, and uh, in the lower pane is the S&P 500. I've, I've denoted with vertical dashed lines here, basically the uh, the points in, in recent history, this, this century anyways, um, where the Fed has, has paused uh, uh, after a pretty notable hiking campaign to only then start to to reduce rates and a couple of things you'll you'll see from this chart first of all the gray areas are recessions you have the tech bubble recession here you get the housing bubble recession very brief ever so brief recession here around the covid uh, spike in in early march of uh, 2020 um, but what you'll notice here is very shortly after uh, a pause the fed almost always um drops rates and drops them very quickly um and it's usually in reaction to a market starting to turn over or a economy in recession. OK, and in fact, uh, this this chart doesn't do its justice on the S&P 500. I, sh I should have put this on a log chart to, to, to show the truth. This is an over 50 percent drop in the market here. It looks like a pretty benign uh, drop here. This is an over 60 percent drop in the market in the housing bubble. 
uh, about a 30, I think 5% drop here in the COVID um, episode and in March, 2020. Bottom line though, is even despite, so when people talk about the Fed coming to the rescue, lowering rates and everything's gonna be peaches and cream again, that usually has very little soothing effect to a market in free fall. In fact, you know, the market continues oftentimes to fall in, in an accelerated fashion, despite the Fed uh, pulling out of stop, all the stocks to lower rates. So um, I, I do think at some point they will be um, forced to, to drive rates lower, but it's probably because they're panicking. And, and I'll just pull up this chart here. This is a you know a picture of, of inflation in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, where you had three increasingly problematic spikes in inflation. And um, I think the Fed is rightfully worried about um, that episode happening again. If they if they become too accommodative, too stimulative again too quickly after a decade of the most stimulative, uh, accommodative, accommodative policy in history, uh, they run the risk of some real problems. So um, long, long road ahead here. And I think markets will will be a battleground in, in figure, figuring this out. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Those are those are great charts, John. Um, yeah, and and uh, you know, interesting seeing that sort of roller coaster inflation chart. Um, just because you know, inflation is measured by CPI is is starting to creep back up again. That's got to make Powell and the team at the Fed feel a little bit nervous. Um, I, I know they were probably expecting it because of base effects and stuff like that. But in parallel with that, with the substantial rise in oil prices here, you know, they've got to be a little bit worried that um, hey, you know, <laughs> we're, we're we're trying to tame this beast, and yet it's it, it's still you know picking itself off the mat here when we really want it to be knocked out at this point in time. Um, we've talked in the past, so I won't spend too much discussion about it here, but we also have this really uh, almost kind of Keystone Cops-esque uh, policy mismatch between what, what the Fed is trying to pursue on the monetary side, which is really pumping, you know, pushing hard on the brakes of the economy. And on the fiscal side, uh, we've still got a lot of stimulus getting pumped into the system by the, the relatively quite high deficit spending that's going on right now. Uh, which is kind of like you know stamping on the gas from a fiscal side, right? So we've got this this you know our, our, our policies on the fiscal monetary side are at odds with each other. They're certainly not coordinated right now, and that's got to be frustrating to the Fed too. Can you do me a favor? Can you pull up the chart one more time again um, of the uh, the Fed's fund rates and the recessions? Because I think it very visually makes the point that I was making earlier, um, where. Uh, Let's see, we're waiting for it to come up here. Okay, but you, you can see with each period where the Fed hiked rates and then paused, that's that gravitational effect that I'm talking about, where when rates go up and they stay high, it's just increasing the, the weight on the economy and, and it's slowing economic growth. It's that putting on the brakes like I talked about. And what history has shown is it's a relatively crude tool. So what the Fed does is it... It hikes rates to slow the economy. At some point, it says, I don't know, you know, hopefully we've done enough. Um, and then it waits. And then it realizes, oh, gosh, we've done more than we thought we, we, we intended to do. <laughs> and then the market starts dropping because the market senses that, OK, there's a recession coming. The economy starts falling into a recession because of that gravitational force for the time it's been pulling the economy down. And then the Fed has to backpedal really quickly. And in each one of these scenarios, you'll see it took a while for the Fed to hike. It then hung out for a while. But the cutting in rates is pretty precipitous, right? And I think that we'd be, uh, unless there's evidence of something truly being different this time, which I don't think you know we really can, can see right now, uh, it would be folly to assume that the Fed is not going to repeat a similar cycle and instead is going to have this magical multi-year gentle glide path <laughs> down to two and a half percent. So time will tell <clears throat> and we'll be watching this closely. But certainly history is, is very clearly shown by that chart you just pulled up there. Um, John really encourages us to expect a much more violent uh, return to cutting when, uh, you know, 
that gravitational force, you know, knocks the economy off the rails, which, which, you know, who knows, a lot of debate going on right now, but could be already sort of in process. Um, Mike, I'm coming to you, I promise, but I got one more chart I want to put up here. Um, and this is the chart of uh, the unemployment rate, which as you said, John, <clears throat> I am, um, I kind of laughed when uh, Powell put this up during his press conference. Uh, so this is uh, the Fed's expectation of the unemployment rate, and it shows it rising uh, to 4.1% in 2024, basically staying there for a year, then slightly coming down again. Um, we've had the unemployment rate uh, already increase over the past couple months from something like 3.4 or so to 3.8, right? So we're not that far from it already. And if we enter 2024 and, you know, a lot of debate going on, whether we're going to have a hard landing or a soft landing or a no landing. But as you said, John, they actually asked him point blank, what type of landing do you expect, Chair Powell? And, uh, you know, everyone's talking about the soft landing. You still thinking soft landing is the default scenario. He basically said no. And he's never going to say, I am likely causing a recession right now. The Fed will never admit to actually causing a recession. But the, the Fed speak that followed in Powell's answer was basically him saying, hey, folks, I think you better prepare for something materially harder than a soft landing here, right? And if that does happen, we're already seeing the unemployment rate creep up under today's conditions. Okay, I, I tweeted that chart out after Powell talked about it and said, you know, Fed is predicting an unemployment rate of 4.1% on the average for next year. I said, I will take the over on that bet all day long. Um, and, you know, Fed has got a terrible track record of, of predicting, um, you know, inflation, unemployment. Uh, predicting market turns, predicting whether recessions are going to happen or not, predicting what's going to happen in the housing market. I don't think this is any different from its long string of, of uh, poor predictions that it's made in the past. Uh, and like I, I said to you, John, I, I just think it's being excessively rosy in the guidance that it's giving us, at least data-wise, both with the unemployment rate, um, but also with um, where the Fed funds rate is going to be, and, and honestly, likely about recession odds. I think it's much higher than the Fed is, is letting on, even though Powell is being a little bit more generous uh, in, in opening the kimono with us than, than most past Fed shares. So anyways, uh, Mike, let me hand it to you here. Um, we'll talk in a second about how the market's reacting to all this, but anything else you want to add to what you took away from the Fed's press conference? Not really, Adam. I think you guys covered the Fed pretty well. Um, you know, it seems like we uh, we're all forced to talk about the Fed probably more than we would like to. The Fed has created an environment where it's only what the Fed does that really matters. It's kind of um, ludicrous in a way, but I think you guys covered it pretty well. I think that both you and John are absolutely right. I think that that dot plot is very optimistic. I wouldn't be surprised to see a very sudden market move downward in the S&P at some point soon and probably next year or or later this next the later this year and then of course a reversion to to easing very quickly the chart that john put up there shows that it won't matter at least historically it doesn't matter the market will do what it wants to do and with the market sitting here at all time high record valuation still um, there's significant risk to downside surprises so I guess I'd like to just talk a little bit about the market reaction because the market is what really matters, what the market is actually doing. And um, just share some charts, just some basic candlestick charts and go through them. So I'm bringing that up now. You should be able to see in a minute yep. a monthly chart of the S&P. So this is the big picture, the monthly chart of the S&P 500. This goes back 20 years. You can see here what we've been living through and what what I think that we can easily call the largest bubble of our lives, the, 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 the largest bubble that we'll ever live through. And it could likely be the kind of the termination or culmination of this money printing experiment that we've all been living through since 2009. But I'm starting with the monthly just to give you the big picture. So here we are at around 43.62 as of today. Interestingly, roughly the same place we were about a year ago. And one reason I find that interesting is back in March of 20. Two is when the Fed started raising rates. So we're about a year and a half past there. And you talked about the lag effect earlier, Adam. There absolutely is a lag effect. With rates going up, they should be uh, moving into or impacting the real economy. But we haven't seen a lot of that yet in financial prices. So the, the S&P fell 
But then for a lot of different reasons this year, including increased liquidity, um, the market has been on a 45 degree bounce from October of last year. But really, it's only brought us back to where we were when the Fed started raising rates in March of 22. And by the way, we're still not above the high of 48.18. That happened, uh, I think, January 4th of 22. I think that's likely the high for this market and that this whole thing is a counter-trend bear market rally. We can't be sure. We never know for sure, which is why the, uh, you know, the, the positions that we have are well-hedged. So in terms of the weekly chart, let's take a look at that. It's been a very controlled consolidation over the last year. And as I said, a 45-degree bounce from October. A few weeks ago, we have become concerned, even with all of our concerns about record overvaluation and downside risk, that this giant kind of cup and handle formation was was forming. And some of our shorter-term indicators reversed into the positive, particularly in the NASDAQ. And so because of it, we made an adjustment to uh, a short hedge that we have in place. We've replaced it with an at-the-money put, which which essentially allows us to put a stop limit on the, the risk associated with that hedge. We did that back here. Um, if we had one or two more good solid weeks, we would have broken out from a pretty neat consolidation level. And so we, we were watching that carefully. We made that change with the hedge. And as it turns... As it turns out, we're actually breaking down at the moment to a pretty critical level. Nothing is actually confirmed yet. Let me move to the daily chart. On the daily chart of the S&P, you can see a head and shoulders formation forming here. Left shoulder, head, and somewhat of a double right shoulder. And you know, so I've drawn a line in here to show where that trend line likely is. Interestingly, we're bouncing off that trend line. And we are between the 50 and 200 day moving average on an exponential moving average. The simple is relatively, the simple moving average is pretty close to this. So we were close to breaking out. We were concerned about that. We made some adjustments. Um, nothing, nothing happened in that case. And now we're closer to breaking down, but it's not really confirmed until we see a further move down through this neckline. Uh, but this is, this is somewhat of a crash scenario i mean if we break and move down harder pretty quickly this can happen we could be down to 4200 very quickly in a matter of a few days and then from there the risk is much lower and so we're we're strongly concerned we're very concerned about the s&p we are very lightly net exposed and we have lots of cash essentially about 50 percent cash equivalents right now with very very little market risk and uh, let me just go to the five minute for one second. You'll see here the Fed meeting yesterday, initially negative. Then it took out the previous high and then it's been straight down from there. I think that, um, and that's on bonds, but the same thing on T uh, on S&P. It was negative, then bounced, and then it's been straight down from the Fed meeting. So I want to go to TLT because bonds also had a big reaction as I just showed there. Here's a daily chart of TLT. It's been a pretty vicious down move. And what I think is likely a capitulatory move here after the Fed. I mean, we talked about the dot plot a little while earlier. The Fed's probably going to get down to, you know, two to three percent target rate, probably a lot sooner than the market thinks. Um, you know, those rates going down will push bond prices up and you know, by some estimates, the Fed has two trillion dollars of losses on their on their books with these, you know, with these falling bond prices. In my mind, it's only a matter of time before something happens, and including things like potential yield curve control, where they buy the long end of the curve, and an S and P market drop with speed and velocity should cause money to come into long term bonds. Now, I'd be remiss in saying that. We've got some very strong hedges on our TLT position as well. Essentially, half of our position is off the table because we have puts in place at 98. The other half, we, we're pretty um, religiously selling calls against it, and we're pulling in income. The, that position is still down, obviously, but we're we're working like crazy to try to manage it and hedge it properly. Those are the two lines here that we have. Our 98 puts are right here. 
So if I can just show a monthly chart, go back to that, because I want to compare that to where the, the Fed started hiking rates in March of 22. That was back here at 130, 135 on TLT. So you can see bonds have been hammered over the period of time since the Fed started raising rates, and yet stocks have hardly moved. So that's the question. Who's lying um, and, and, and who's correct? I think the S&P is lying. I think the S&P is, uh, is being teed up for a big drop here. And I think that long-term bonds will bounce. It's been some. It's been difficult to hold on to that position, but we're doing the best we can with option hedges. And I think that ultimately, long-term bonds bounce probably come back up to here, you know, one ten, one twenty, or even higher on TLT as the Fed does uh, have to revert to to easing much sooner than expected. So, lastly, I think that I would just say one or two things about gold, and then I'll then I'll stop. Still, one of the best-looking charts out there is gold. This is the 20-year monthly chart, giant consolidation. And over the last five months, it's been really frustrating for gold investors, but it's forming this little handle-like consolidation. The big question mark here, like it was with the S&P, is where is it going to go next? I believe we're going to break out. We're going to pierce this triple top and move into the $2,500 $2, range, and that's probably going to happen next year I'd, I'd like to say later this year but i don't know when this is going to break out to the upside but the projection would be there around 2500 short term on the daily chart gold really hasn't moved too much since the fed decision it's been all about stocks gapping down and bonds gapping down since the fed decision but i would bet on bonds at this point a lot more than i bet on stocks i'll pause there Okay, and all right. So th this is where things start to get really interesting. And thanks for thanks for confirming um, for viewers that you guys are not losing confidence in your your treasury trade and your 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 TLT trade. No, we're You're working not, it like crazy, but not not losing confidence in it. Okay, so um, number of folks that I've interviewed on this channel recently, uh, Darius being one of them. Um, uh, Lance Roberts uh, being another one and, and Sven Henrik, um, you know, all of them say, hey, look, uh, you know, this is all prior to yesterday's uh, Fed presser, by the way, but but really, you know, Powell didn't even raise rates, right? He just was more hawkish in his out outlook. Um, but they basically, they, they all, I think, share your guys' general opinion that uh, a recession lies ahead in 2024 at some point. And the Fed's going to be forced to pivot and whatnot, right? Um, but they're they've been looking at the market activity and saying, "Hey, you know, there's still been room for stocks to run," and that certainly has been what's happened so far this year. And they're all pretty much saying to to people who are really bearish about what may likely happen in the you know coming in the coming future, saying, you know. That very well may happen, but but you could still have a pretty big run up in stocks uh, beforehand. Uh, Lance has basically said, "Look, the market has traded much more on technicals this year versus fundamentals, and the technicals have still been been pretty bullish. We haven't broken through, um, you know, too many uh, technical warning barriers yet. Um, now, the past couple of days um, have brought the the S and P down below the fifty day moving average." Um, so it's punctured through one of them, but there's, there's, you know, it, it hasn't broken through key support yet. Right. So he's basically saying he's not going to change what he's doing until he sees those, the support levels break. Um, Spence says pretty much exactly the same thing, just with a ton more charts. I think you guys, uh, watched his video from last week. Uh, he basically said, look, I hate to say this, but you know, I, I, <laughs> I'm very bullish fundamentally, but I, I got to bearish fundamentally, but I got to be bullish on the technicals until it, at some point they change. And he brought up that that chart of the um, uh, past 20 years average of the S&P. It's just a seasonality chart. And he says, look, I normally don't trade off of this. But he said the market's been following the script all year. And if that continues, it shows that we should expect stocks to kind of run up through the end of the year, pretty much from here on out. And again, Sven is saying, look, there's no guarantee it's going to, but this is just the trajectory it's been following. So as long as this correlation holds, we have to hold ourselves open to the fact that this may happen. Darius has a very similar point of view. And one of the things that he mentioned is he, he showed how um, 
stocks tend to actually outperform in years prior to a recession. So, you know, sort of they, they they party hard and they sort of slam into the recession and then they have those big corrections that John was showing earlier on. And what he said is you get a, 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 of that outperforming year, over 50% of that return comes in the last three months before the recession. So it's like the party just gets wilder and wilder until the cops arise, right? So, cops arrive. So, you know, he's he, again, he's saying, look, uh, who knows if this is exactly what's going to happen. But, but you know, if we indeed think that there is a recession coming at some point next year, Darius pegs it at around the beginning of Q2 next year. And he's saying, folks, just just be aware, there's, there's potential that stocks could actually run pretty hard up until, you know, the beginning of next year, right? Not saying it's necessarily going to happen. They're obviously selling off right now in the short term based on what Powell said. But like I said, this is where it gets interesting, right? Whereas a capital manager and an investor, you get to try to pick what you're going to play for. You know, do you, do, do you think, you know, do you think stocks are falling off right now? Is this the start of it? You know, and Mike, you showed some charts and said, hey, maybe this could be the beginning of something. And certainly we can come up with a zillion arguments why that that fundamentally should be the case. Um, or do you look at more sort of the technical side of things, what history has said in other situations like this and say, hey, I don't know, maybe I got to put some some uh, give some mindset to the fact that stocks may continue to run up from here. And if so, what do you want to do? Do you want to try to play that or do you just want to sort of sit on the sidelines and see and then when it becomes a little bit clearer, make your decision? Right. But this is where it gets interesting. And same thing on bonds. You know, Darius thinks that. Uh, that bonds will do well when the recession hits and the Fed pivots, but he thinks that uh, they are more than, in his estimation, more than likely, uh, as as if stocks do surge for the next couple months here or whatever, that bonds could go further down. And he actually pegs uh, the, his ten-year target right now. I think was four point seven five percent. So you know we're we're getting close to that. We're getting close to four and a half percent on today, but he thinks he could tack another quarter point onto that. Nah, we'll see what happens. But again, like I said, this is where it's beginning to get really interesting, where you can get smart people looking at the same data and making different predictions on it. And you, as an investor or a capital manager, have to determine how you want to surf that. John, you're nodding a lot as I'm saying yeah. this. Would love to get your reaction. Yeah, so so all this investing really is about probabilities. I hope hope none of the viewers take from us or, or maybe even your other commentators that uh, it's a binary type of uh, view that we have. It's all about probabilities. So, for example, yes, we have had a long, uh, longer duration treasury position for uh, um, recent you know months over the last year or so. Uh, but it's only been at, at most 15% allocation, uh, but absolutely have not been of the mind that that long-term bonds were a hand over fist, you know, steal of the century. They're getting more attractive, but our position only was about 15%. In fact, we've been um, leaning much more heavily on the short end of the curve, uh, short-term treasury bills, three-month kind of thing. In recent weeks, we've extended that out to six and, and, and kind of 12-month type of thing. Uh, and Mike talked about us having over, a little over 50% cash. When, when he says that, what we really have in it is short-term treasury bills. Um, the last couple of tranches we did uh, were yielding uh, an, annual yields uh, just, just shy of 5.5%. They've actually spiked up a little bit since then. Um, so it's all about uh, proper positioning. Um, just a quick comment on the um, election cycle, you know, cyclicality uh, data that you know gets thrown out uh, quite a bit. Yeah, there is uh, cyclicality there that is somewhat regular. But the problem with those kinds of things is they, uh, in averaging out and coming up with those average cycles, you you lose a lot of texture and nuance that that you only have to have one outlier um, to 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 make those averages and those those cycles be rather irrelevant. Uh, I may be doing my math wrong, but I think um, 87 was a year that preceded a an election year. And in October 87, you had the crash of 87. Um, not saying that that's necessarily what we see this October, but th those those rules of thumb, those cyclicality um, averages, you can lose a lot of context. And, and 87 saw a over 20% drop in the market in one day after a pretty bloody week the week before. And that was from valuation levels that were less than half on a Schiller PE uh, basis than we're at now. So gotta be very careful about using some of those things. Um, and in terms of um, 
the bigger picture of interest rates, you know, uh, 10 year treasuries did, and, and I'll just share a longer term chart for, for perspective here. Um, let's see here. This is a long term chart of 10 year treasury yields. So we're uh, just today, we, we got just shy of four and a half percent. I think we're, we're probably near the end in, in, in this spike higher. Maybe we, we, we challenged the 5% that we saw back in, in uh, prior to the, uh, the housing bubble. But um, even still, if you take TLT, for example, it's got a duration of about um, 17 years. If we, if we had about a half a percent move higher in the 10-year yield, Simple math that we're talking maybe about an eight to ten percent decline in something like TLT. So it's not like there's this major uh, further bond collapse likely to happen. Doesn't mean we can't see further weakness. Uh, TLT is just above ninety right now, ninety-one and change. I think maybe we see high eighties, maybe mid eighties. But um, our position, as Mike already said, is about half of what what it was. It's about seven and a half percent position, and we're renewing hedges on that so we don't have any any concerns about that with the position size and our strategy um but what we do have is lots of dried powder that's very safe in the form of uh treasury bonds uh tre treasury bills i'm sorry that we can in a moment sell and, and deploy in, into other things like stocks or bonds at, at better prices right and, and if i can just note here if you go back right before the recession of 2008 uh where we're yeah the, the previous kind of high there I think the federal debt was around ten trillion dollars. Yeah, what's, what's it now, John? It's like over thirty-three trillion. Right? Oh, it, it's a whole different ballgame, courtesy of the money printer over the last decade. Absolutely right. And and this is when I talk about that gravitational effect. It's so much stronger now, even though we're at the you know we're nearing the same federal funds rate. The effect of that federal funds rate is so much stronger now, just because we have so much more debt in the system. Right. Um, all right. Um, well, guys, great discussion here. Um, uh, one thing I want to note about uh, something that Powell, actually something that Powell didn't say, uh, something that he said and he didn't say, he kept talking about, um, you know, that the, the Fed's mandate is to um, pursue price stability. And, and really of its dual mandate, the price stability one really is the more important one of them. Uh, and he said, look, you know, folks, we get it. We get that there are households uh, that are, uh, you know, really impacted when price stability isn't maintained. And that's a fancy way of saying that when, when the cost of living goes up, inflation, you know, causes the cost of living to go up, uh, regular households get hurt by it. Um, but what's so interesting is he, he did not acknowledge any role that the Fed played in contributing to the spike in inflation, right? It just, it just basically talks about it like it's this act of God that kind of came out of nowhere. Um, so he doesn't doesn't address the Fed's own culpability in it. And, you know, all right, should we really expect him to do that? Probably not. Um, just because, you know, it's, it's, it's admitting fault and, and, and no major government entity is, is going to willingly do that. Um, but what he also didn't do is apologize in any way for this. Right. There's no sense of like, hey, average American, I'm really sorry that you're suffering for the the shockwaves and the repercussions of bad decisions that we made in the past. Right. Again, maybe not something that he's going to say, but um, it, it, it does just sort of, you know, it's infuriating for, for folks. I don't want to speak for you guys, but I believe you're, you're like me where, you know, the Fed is, is sort of trying to paint itself here as golly gee doing its best to rescue uh you know all of us from this this you know unfortunate inflation that's sort of you know magically come out of nowhere when of course it's a direct uh effect from policies that the fed and uh, the federal government have been jointly pursuing um i, I see both you guys nodding on this um I'll, I'll let you guys make any commentary you want on that let, let me just note it based on consumer households um we are finally beginning to see some real data. I know we've been tracking lots of data points all year um, that have been suggesting that consumer households are increasingly, um, you know, beginning to strain under the high cost of living. Um, but uh, now a lot of uh, institutional research houses are coming out with uh, increasing warnings about the weakening consumer household. Uh, JP Morgan just came out with uh, 
uh, a report where they basically warned about um, seeing increased weakness in the consumer because of a longer term impact of uh, inflation and higher for longer rates. This is a, pretty much the lag effect that we've been warning about student debt going back into repayment uh, and consumer personal savings depletion. Um, we talked about, you know, the pig and the python. Um, it seems like from a personal savings side of things, the, the pig is pretty much fully out of the python at this point in time, and consumers have gone from surplus to deficit. And that's obviously been very supported um, by the huge increase that we've seen in consumer revolving debt balances, where people are increasingly funding more and more in their lifestyle you know, on the plastic credit card. In addition to JP Morgan, uh, Goldman Sachs it just came out, basically said something quite similar. Um, but they said that the uh, the things that they're wa watching are is um, the focus on higher oil prices and how that is crimping consumer uh, budgets, um, uh, the student debt resumption like we talked about. Um, and then um, credit card data is showing that there's softer spending uh, on consumers uh, following the back to school period. So we got a little bit of a juice to the economy because of uh, back to school. Um, but the spending after that has been weaker than seasonally normally suggests. So these are signs that the consumer is increasingly tapping out here, right? So we'll keep watching all of this. But yeah, pal, you know, <laughs> you should be mindful of the impact of uh, the uh, of price instability on consumer households because real people suffer from this. And the data is showing that they are increasingly starting to suffer, you know, noticeably from here. And of course, as consumer spending goes down, our GDP is 70% consumer spending. Um, that, you know, basically is, is some of that increase in gravity that I'm talking about that's going to be slowing economic growth. And if that then causes corporate budgets to pinch enough that they have to start laying people off, then we get in that vicious cycle. And we talked about how we think the 4.1% uh, unemployment projection by the Fed is unrealistic. I mean, that number just completely goes out the window if we get a true recession with with substantive layoffs accompanying it. So guys, I'll hand you the baton to uh, give any parting bits of advice here. Uh, Mike, why don't we start with you? Yeah, it's maddening, isn't it? Uh, the Fed talks about price stability, yet they've, they've caused, I think, the largest bubble we'll ever see. Um, I was reading a piece that Charles Hughes Smith uh, wrote the other day, and he estimates that $55 trillion in excess wealth, wealth in quotation marks, has been has been created since the 2009 financial crisis in this country alone due to the excess money printing. And most of that, greater than 90% of that, went to 10% of the people. And, uh, and most of that, you know, to the top 1%. So that hasn't been fair. That's causing some social, uh, I, I think some societal problems or certainly will going forward. And, you know, the Fed says they want price stability, but a lot of people can't afford homes these days. You know, I saw a different chart that showed what a $1,000 mortgage payment uh, could purchase in terms of a house. And it was something like, you know, 270,000 has gone down, down to like 150,000 or so. I wish I had that chart at my fingertips, but suffice it to say, the amount of house that you could buy with a $1,000 mortgage payment has nearly been cut in, uh, you know, been cut in half. And yet housing still remains a loft. It's pretty much a marvel how long this bubble goes on and on and on, both in the S&P and in, and in housing. And that is the financial markets and in housing. It won't go on forever. We've, we've trusted these people. Um, they have, I think, taken it too far. Um, you know, they say they want price stability and yet we don't really have it. You know, they said they wanted 2% inflation for years. And that's why we were at while we were at 0% interest rates, then all of a sudden inflation went from near zero to 9%. And now it's trending back into the fours. Uh, but you know, honestly, there is no plan B here. It's always been for the last 15 years, more and more stimulus. And it will be that way again, I think soon when this market falls, it'll be more stimulus. This time, I don't think the market will react positively. And I think it could be worse than a lot of people think. And I think it could stay down a lot longer than people think more of an l-shaped move than a v-shaped move so let's see what what, what happens but um, those are my thoughts as we wrap up all right good wrap up thoughts um real quick as we land the plane here um first off I want to remind folks that tickets are still available at the early bird price for the wealthy on fall online conference that's coming up on saturday october 21st 
I haven't said this uh, as much as I should, but if you can't watch live on that actual date, don't worry. Everybody who registers for the conference will be sent replay videos of the entire event, all the presentations, all the live Q&A afterwards. So don't worry if you can't watch the entire thing on the actual day of, you'll get those videos you can watch at your heart's content. I won't go through the amazing faculty that we have there because uh, you can find all that and how to register for the event over at wealthion.com slash conference. Um, it is our best faculty lineup ever. And I do just want to note that um, I just got confirmation from Jeff Clark that he will be recording as he has for the previous two conferences, uh, a bonus video that goes through his latest um, precious metals mining stock picks. Uh, as we've talked about in past videos, guys, uh, that complex is uh, being run much better than it was a year and a, a decade ago. And the prospect for the underlying metals uh, the prospects for the underlying metals in some cases are, are as strong as they've ever been. And you gave a quick nod to this a few minutes ago, Mike, uh, but the miners have really been lagging. And so this could potentially be an extraordinarily good time to invest in this space. Brian London, who I had in the channel last week, said that he thinks that this is kind of a generational opportunity. So I'm um, very glad to say that that Jeff's going to be recording that video, going through his top stock picks, you know, explaining, sharing the companies, explaining what about them attracts his attention, and obviously sharing things like tickers and whatnot that investors can go off and go check. Uh, so definitely go uh, register for that conference to lock in the early bird price. And if you're an alumnus, check your of our previous conferences, check your email inbox. You should have a discount code for me that'll give you an additional 15% discount off of the early bird 30% discount. Um, if you enjoy these uh, sort of special reports that we do in response to uh, breaking developments uh, in the economy, in the financial markets, uh, please vote your support for us to do more of these by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And obviously, as we talk about every week, there is a lot going on. Like I said, it's getting really interesting now where smart people are looking at the same data and coming to different conclusions. Um, these can be very difficult times for the average investor to navigate. You know, Most folks just are trying to figure out what's going on, but most importantly, they're trying to live their lives. They're trying to focus on their jobs, take care of their families. They don't necessarily have the experience, the expertise, or just the time and bandwidth in their lives to really be glued to the markets and really trying to, you know, in real time, uh, tweak their uh, their strategies and, and their allocations. So that's why we highly recommend that you work under the guidance of a good professional financial advisor, especially one that takes into account all of the issues that we've been talking about here in this video today and on this channel in the past weeks. If you've got a good one who's doing that for you, great, stick with them. But if you don't, consider scheduling a free consultation with one of the financial advisors that Wealthion endorses, maybe even John and Mike themselves and their team there at New Harbor Financial. To do that, just go to Wealthion.com, fill out the short form there, only takes a couple of seconds doesn't cost you anything to have these consultations. There's no commitment to work with these guys. Uh, these advisors just offer it as a free public service to help as many people position as prudently as possible in advance of, of what might be coming down the road. Um, John, I'm going to let you have the last word here as we walk folks out. Well, always great to be with you, Adam. Uh, things are, are moving quickly here. Um, uh, we're always watching markets, but we also, our clients have real lives and, and much of the conversations we have with them uh, have to do with things that are uh, related, at least some somewhat tangentially to their their investment assets, but it's so much broader. For example, we have um, the opportunity to, to have a conversation this week with a group of professionals about end of end of life planning and things like that. Uh, Mike and I are CFPs, certified financial planners, as is uh, Michelle on our team. Justin Griffin uh, practices this kind of stuff every day as well. So we have the opportunity to kind of ha have a a, a um, actionable um, seminar or conversation, if you will, on this topic. And uh, I'm, you know, um, I'm actually dealing. Many of our team members are dealing with these kind of things personally. Being in the sandwich, sandwich generation, this week had some issues with my mom's health situation, and um, you know, my mother-in-law has got some some uh, uh, ter terminal diagnosis. So we're living this stuff as as people. And uh, we know how, how hard these kinds of things can be for our clients. And, and we're here to talk about and counsel them through these kinds of things as well, uh, not just talking markets and uh, price movements. Um, it's, it's a bigger picture. It's about life. Thanks for that reminder, right? It's not just about what stocks are doing. It's about all of the aspects of, of somebody's life. Um, and uh, 
well, let me just say first and foremost for myself and from the, the viewers, John, um, best wishes to you and the, the the seniors in your family and in handling all this transition as best you guys are all able to. Thank you very much, Adam. All right. Well, look, as we wrap it up here, guys, thanks for a great week. Uh, great discussion. Um, Mike, you were talking about housing. I just want to flag for folks. Um, we had an exceptionally good interview last week with housing analyst Melody Wright. Uh, the feedback that video has been tremendous. And I just flag it here because uh, basically Melody, her main conclusion there is, is, is the the headlines and the data that we're hearing about uh, the U.S. housing market are, are actually much worse than what we're being told. And in many cases, it's it's due not necessarily to intentional deception. It's just that there's a lot of flawed and faulty data that even the real estate professionals uh, themselves are using to draw conclusions. Um, it's a great interview. Um, Melody has done real boots on the ground analysis. She's actually gone and visited a number of the, the, the hottest or at least formerly hottest real estate markets in the country, the Austins, the Phoenixes, the Las Vegases, the Nashvilles, the Miamis. Uh, and a lot of her findings are really nothing short of shocking. So folks, if anyone's interested in learning more about what's truly going on in the real estate market, at the end of this video, I'll put up uh, a link uh, to that interview with Melody. Um, thanks so much, guys. Great week. Everyone else, thanks so much for watching. Thank you, Adam. We'll see you soon. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth and because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type. The kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA but for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right, with all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.